You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. A number of years ago, I was painting uh, some areas on my house, and I was on the roof of my house, and uh, it's a two-story, and this is in Southern California. It was a two-story house, uh, but the one story just kind of kind of came up out of the garage roof, and so that one was a lot lower because the upstairs just protruded above what was the lower flashing of the garage, and I was standing up on that, and I've got my baseball cap on, and I'm painting, and I'm going along like this, and I don't see it, but where the both corner joists come together, the fascia boards on the outside of the roof below the tiles for the second story, it's about this high, and I've got the blinders on because I'm like this, and I don't see it, and I'm walking with the pole, and I run headlong right into the corner of that. And it was one of those where the corner had, like, peeled away, just kind of warped a little bit. So it was like this 45-degree kind of, like, knife edge, and I didn't even know it. I didn't know it until I heard my head. You know how it is when you get scraped on your head and you have hair there? So you actually hear, like, the kind of going on. So in my head I heard, and, and I felt pain. And instantly when you, the, you know, the first thing you do when you cut your head or something like that, the first thing you do is what? Yeah, some of you curse, right? Um, but, but the first thing you typically do is you put pressure on it, right? And instantly, like, through my baseball cap, I knew I was cut. And when I pulled my hand away, there was blood through my baseball cap. So I knew I got myself really bad, like really, really bad, you know? And the first thing you do, and you're just like, oh, and I'm, like, so thankful I didn't knock myself off, roll off the roof, you know, onto the ground. My wife would be like, we're never letting you do home improvement ever, ever again. But it just hurt, you know, you get that, and what you learn real quick, because you learn it when you're a little kid, when it comes to first aid, if you want to stop the bleeding, you've got to apply what? Pressure. You've got to add pressure. Right? So the first thing you do, it's a natural reaction, because you just got hurt, wounded, you know, whatever. You're going to grab it, you're going to try to stop the bleeding, you're going to add pressure, and that's kind of what you do. And when we look at the Passion Week of Christ, we begin to see a week filled with pressure. We see pressure from all sorts of different angles. We see pressure to conform to the political time of his day. We see pressure to conform to what the disciples want to do. We see pressure to conform to what the people want to do. We see pressure from on Jesus regarding what the Pharisees wanted him to do or more appropriately what they wanted him to stop doing. And pressure is coming from every angle. When we look at the Passion Week, we begin to see pressure. And if you'll open your Bible with me to John chapter 12, we're going to look a little bit at what happened on Palm Sunday a lot of years ago. John chapter 12, if you have your outline, take that out. You're going to need it here today. Grab the pen out of the chair back in front of you. But Jesus is heading not from not far away, from basically Bethany. He's going to head up into Jerusalem for the celebration of the feast. And so it says this in John 12, 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. These are actually statements from the Old Testament. The statements from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. In verse 14, it says this, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, this is from Zechariah 9.9, and it is a forecast, a prophecy regarding the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. 
And so all of a sudden the people see this. Here is Jesus, and Jesus is coming. They're super excited about it. Why? Because they had heard all the miracles Jesus had been doing. And they're super excited Jesus is coming. Instead of being anywhere in the nation during the festival, he's going to be here. And they're so excited because the, the degree of the miracles Jesus had done had kind of gone from feeding to healing. And recently he had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead who had been dead for four days. So now this Jesus, that guy, is coming. And where is he coming? He's coming up to Jerusalem. And they're super excited. And so what happens is, you know, most of us are familiar with, like, palm branches for Palm Sunday and waving of the palms. And, and they're laying these palm branches down. And they're, and they're basically giving a royal welcome to Jesus. But I need to let you know that the most prominent, really, symbol of Palm Sunday is not a palm branch. When you look at the text, before people called it Palm Sunday, when you look at the text, the most significant figurative illustration of that day was the donkey's colt. It should be Donkey Sunday. Because Jesus found a little small donkey because what people don't realize, we think, man, that's just the worst ride ever. Like, that's not, like, why in the world, why wouldn't he come on, like, a white horse? Or, like, you know, just awesome, right? Well, in those days, the king's ride was the colt of a donkey. That was the absolute most sweetest ride you could have. You're down low, you're closer to the people, you're riding this thing in, it's very special. Jesus is riding this in. So not only is Jesus coming to town, but he's riding the colt of a donkey. And all of a sudden they think, this is it, this is our king. He's coming in like a king, he acts like a king, he does miracles beyond any king, he's like the king of kings, the lord of lords. Here he comes into town, and they're so super excited, they begin to say Hosanna. And you have to understand for a moment, what does Hosanna mean? Some people think Hosanna means like, woohoo! Or they think like, you know, it's a nice song. Uh, they think like it's what you do on Palm Sunday. No, Hosanna actually has a meaning. And the meaning of Hosanna actually is, I beg you to save us. It means, Lord, deliver us. So as he's coming into town, they're going, save us from our mess. We're in a political nightmare. We're an oppressed people. We are, have another country overseeing our country. And we've got factions everywhere. There's no unity in all the land. And come, come save us. Deliver us from the oppression of the Romans. Deliver us as the Jewish people. And they're saying this God can do so much. But what they're begging him to do on that day is to save them. Lord, save us. Save us from our mess. Hosanna is an appropriate word for today, isn't it? You ever feel like that? Sometimes it's internal. Lord, save me. Save me from myself. Other times it's external. Lord, save us. Save us from our mess. Save us from our culture. Save us from this world. But that's what they're saying. When they say Hosanna, they're saying, Lord, save us. That's what it means. The scriptures go on there in John 12. We pick up, it says this in verse 16. At first, his disciples did not, re did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Do you hear the envy in their voice? 
you hear the jealousy among the Pharisees? What they've been doing was getting them nowhere. It seems like the whole world, the whole momentum had turned from their leadership, from their influence, but now spiritually was being influenced by Jesus, and they were losing their ground. It's interesting that the crowd that saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead had continued to talk. They continued to spread the word. So the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead had reached Jerusalem long before Jesus reached Jerusalem. And some of that crowd probably was coming along with him to Jerusalem. And so there's a meeting of two crowds, people crying, Lord, save us. And the crowd coming going, this guy can raise people from the dead. It's an amazing moment, and they are worshiping, they are singing. I need you to understand, though, which is often misinterpreted, that the crowd that greeted and worshiped him on Sunday is not the same element of the crowd that cried out, crucify him on Friday. Just like any culture, with any sort of rallies or gatherings, there are different factions And these are the common people, the people saying, Lord, save us. But on Friday, the Pharisees had gathered quite a few of their crowd, their crowd together, and incited this crowd, this zealous crowd, to cry out, crucify him. The crowd, some of whom was with Jesus on his entry to Jerusalem, had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, knew the guy had been dead for four days, had been sealed up in a tomb, buried, wrapped up where he couldn't really even hardly move. And Jesus raised him from the dead. See, the Pharisees in this moment, they go, we've got to change tactics. We've got to level up. Whatever we've been doing to this point to oppose Jesus, we've got to level up. It's game on. We've got to do something even bigger. Because at this moment, what is happening is the people, their loyalty is bleeding away from the Pharisees. And it's going straight toward Jesus. And so they think what we've got to do is we've got to add pressure. We've got to change our tactics to stop the bleeding. Because all the people are following Jesus, and you hear it when they say, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world is going after him. It's, it's the sound of defeat. It's the sound of like, we've got to up our game. And that's what they begin to plot to do. Well, if you follow along in the Passion Week, and I would highly encourage you to, to open the Gospels to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this week, read, what did Jesus do after Palm Sunday? What did he do on Monday? What did he do on Tuesday? What did you do on Wednesday? You won't find a lot on Wednesday because it's silent. There's not a whole lot that scriptures tell us what they were doing on Wednesday. On Thursday, what was Jesus doing? And did he get arrested? He got arrested. He was tried in the middle of the night. What happens on Friday when he's crucified? What happens on Saturday when he's dead and in the grave and everyone's hiding because they're afraid of the religious institution and the Romans? And what happens on Sunday? Will you walk the path of Jesus this week? If you want to add some gasoline to the fire of the coal of the Spirit of God inside you. Walk with Jesus during this Passion Week. Every day, read in the Scriptures. What was he doing on Monday? What was he doing on Tuesday? But what we find out is this. Somewhere between Jesus coming into town on Sunday and then getting arrested late on Thursday, we find out that John records some of the things that Jesus not only did, but some of the things that Jesus actually prayed And we're going to look at some of the prayer that Jesus prayed. Jesus knew he was going up to Jerusalem. He knew he would not survive the week in the typical sense of survival. He knew that he was going to suffer. He was going there as a suffering servant. But Jesus prayed for some things. And he prayed for his current disciples, 
He prayed for the people who were believing him then. He prayed also for us, future generations who would believe. And we have to ask the question, well, Jesus, knowing he's going to die, knowing that he's going to be raised again from the dead, knowing that he will conquer sin and death, but knowing that he has to suffer first, and knowing that he'd only be on earth for a short time, about 40 days after his resurrection, what did Jesus pray? What was utmost on his heart? And we're going to look at that a little bit today. Author Larry Osborne said, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus predicted church growth, but he prayed for unity. Number one in your outline, Jesus predicted church growth, but he prayed for unity. Jesus didn't pray, Father, give me, give me hundreds, give me mega churches, give me big, you know, thing, let the, let the gospel go throughout the whole world. Jesus didn't pray that stuff. Jesus assumed it. He assumed that the good news of his hope was going to go throughout the whole world. But what he prayed for was unity. And that's very important to understand. Jesus prayed for the future believers. That's us, his church. In John 17, beginning with verse 20, Jesus says this. My, he's speaking about his disciples. My prayer is not for them alone, but now he changes. Who's the prayer for? I pray also for those who will what? That's us. Please understand, Jesus, before he died, in John 17, is praying for you, the church, those who will believe, those who will be followers of Jesus Christ, those who will come together in that. He's praying for them. So who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be what? Everyone say it out loud. All of them may be what? One. All right, everybody say one. Ready? One. We're going to say that a lot here this morning, so just... Ah, get warmed up. It's going to be a good time. That they may be one as we are one. Uh, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be what? As we are one, right? I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory that you have given me, because you love me before the creation of the world. Jesus predicted church growth, but he prayed for unity. Jesus exists in unity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that the three are unified in their very nature. God, in essence, is unified. And now he's saying, God, as we're bringing these people into our forever family, those who will believe in us in the future, I pray that the world would see them as unified because there's an amazing component that happens when the world watches the church be unified. Here's what it is. Number uh, two on your outline, unity gives evidence to the world that it may believe that the Father sent the Son. Gives evidence to the world that it may believe that the Father sent the Son. The church is the foundation for giving hope to the lost. That Christ is a Savior who actually transforms lives. Why were the people screaming Hosanna? Because they were saying lives are actually being changed. Not talked about being changed, but the sick are healed, the dead are raised, the blind see, the lame walk. They're saying there's actual transformation that's happening. There's actual renewing that goes on. And what happens is the world is that the church is the foundation that the world looks at to say, does life transformation happen? Are prayers answered? 
Do people change in ways that they couldn't change before? Does God's Holy Spirit renew and transform people? Can people enter recovery and actually get better over time in recovery as they walk in it? Can people walk away from being trapped completely by their sin under the condemnation of their sin and find freedom in Christ and forgiveness of their sin and walk in new life? Does that happen? There's a witness component to the world when the church walks together in unity. So we tell the world, when we witness to them, we tell them that we are loved by God, that we belong to his forever family, that we're not perfect, but we're becoming more and more being conformed into the image of Jesus, and it is our pleasure as we've been blessed by God to be a blessing to his church, and then we're sent in the world to carry the good news that the kind of transformation that happened to me can happen to you too, because of Jesus. That's what we do. So unity in the church gives evidence to the world that the Father actually sent Jesus. So let me flip the coin. What happens when the world sees a church that's not unified? What happens when a church sees, when the world sees churches that define and separate on the minute details of their theology, all thinking that they're all right, causing millions of denominations? You know, whose idea is that? Man's idea or God's? That's man's idea, right? And the enemy just wipes his hands together in, you know, in glee because he just says they can't get along. They divide every which way they can. They can't understand that there is one Lord, and it hinders what the world sees. Listen, as we experience more pressure from outside in the world against the church, against the standards of righteousness, against integrity, then the church is going to actually become more unified because we now lay aside petty differences to say there is a God who transforms lives, even in a culture that's gone wild. And people are going to see that, guess what? I could believe that the Father sent the Son because I'm looking at the church. I'm looking how the church loves. I'm looking how the church responds to the, the brutal needs of our world in the way that governments can't respond. I, I see the church being unleashed in these ways, and they're actually living out love and along with their accusations, they also watch and see a unified church, and they say, maybe, maybe the Father did, in fact, send the Son. One of the important things about unity is that's one of the evidences. Second, on the day of Pentecost, believers were sovereignly, suddenly, supernaturally united by the Spirit into the body of Christ, and they were made one positionally. Where before it was, you know, God, but now we are made one in Christ. By faith in Christ alone, we are part of his body. And the church becomes unleashed. We are now the body of Christ, the church. That's what we are. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, here's what I want to do. Every time it says one in here, you're going to say one out loud. So let's read this together, all right? Here we go. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul describes, listen, when the Holy Spirit has unleashed now the church, there is one Lord, there is one body. And the whole idea is, instead of it being many, instead of it being minute, instead of it being you know, denominational, instead of it being anything else, he's saying, listen, no, no, there is the common denominator is one Christ. He has made the church one body, not many bodies that somehow make up God. 
not many paths that somehow get everybody to God, but one, one way, one body. So he says in Ephesians 3, uh, 4, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why? Because there's one. Everything is one. It's all about one. But what our obligation? To make every effort to keep the unity. Well, let's break this down a little bit. There's a lot of ones in that verse, but let's look at them on your outline. It says one body. Well, who is that? What's this one body you're talking about? This is all believers since the church's beginning. All followers of Jesus Christ from the very beginning of the church, that's who this is. It is one body. So when you have become one, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you now become associated with all those who believed in Christ since the beginning, the launch of the church. So all believers from all nations, do you think of yourself as being united because of one Christ to believers in other nations? Do you think of that? Are you, do you realize that from, let's kind of rewind a little bit. From Bible-believing, gospel-preaching congregations, let's say here in Elk Grove, or here in California, or in the United States, or around the world. Really, it's all nations, but it's not just all nations at this current time. It's what's happened previously. So let's rewind a little bit. Some of you can remember some of the movements of the gospel over the ages, or you know your church history. So let's rewind a little bit. Not just what's happening now, but let's go backwards. Do you remember the Jesus movement? Some of you remember the Jesus movement. Maybe before that, you remember the Billy Graham Crusades, which were about some of the same time. They overlapped. You remember that. Some of you will remember back into church history or early American history and that there were large evangelistic big tent revivals. And these things would happen all over the place and preachers would travel from place to place and preach the good news of Jesus. You're united to those gatherings, to those believers, to those people. You were part, if you will remember all the way back, to Puritans who would believe in Jesus. You would think back all the way to the Reformation that you, because you're united in Christ, are one with Reformation believers. You are one with dark ages believers. You are ones with those who believed in Jesus in the Roman church era. You are one with the believers of the churches named in the New Testament, churches in Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth and other places. You are one, made one in the spirit with them. You are one with those who followed what was called the way. It wasn't called the church yet. No church had been planted. No church had authentically in a location been launched. What do they do? The people who follow Jesus just simply called themselves the way. You're united to one body. And it goes far beyond what you might think. But that you were united to one. But not only one body, but he says to one spirit. Well, what's that? That's the Holy Spirit. You and I have a spirit of breath in us. We have the breath of life in our mortal body. We have a body. We have a soul. But when your soul becomes alive in Christ, God gives you his Holy Spirit. And that same spirit is in everybody else. So you're united in spirit. You have one hope. What's the hope? What do we hope in? We hope in an eternal inheritance. That the spirit is a deposit given in us that when we die, we will be resurrected and have an inheritance kept in heaven for us. We have one hope. We have one Lord, that's Jesus Christ. He's the head of the body. We don't have a figurative head of the church. We have a literal head of the church, it's Jesus Christ. He's the leader of the church. Everybody else is a follower 
of Christ. We have one faith. And this faith is handed down to us, uh, particularly in this part of the Bible, but the New Testament. We have one faith that the New Testament reveals what the patriarchs and what the Old Testament has been laying the groundwork for all along. That God would send a Savior to redeem the world from sin. We have one faith through Jesus Christ. There is one baptism. It's water baptism as a public confession of faith. That you and I, you and I, we believe and then we're baptized. You believe and you get baptized. You believe and you have a water baptism, a public confession to everybody around. Hey, I believe in Jesus. One baptism. And then you have one God. Who's that one God? The Father God, sovereign over all. Jesus prayed that you and I would be one. Oneness makes us stick together. It stops the free bleeding that sucks life out of churches that try to divide over every little issue. It stops, you know, the outside pressure against churches. It's why unity is worth fighting for, always. It's why unity is elevated. It's what Jesus prayed for. Jesus put the pressure on prayer for unity for the church, for the sake of his bride, and for the sake of its witness to the world, because he knows the way of the evil one. The evil one just wants to divide over the minute details. But Jesus says there is something greater at stake. And what's greater at stake is a church that loves each other, a church that cares for the needs of the world, a church that is united among all sorts of other churches that loves the Jesus and is Bible-believing, gospel-preaching. It doesn't mean we, don't, we drop our doctrine. No, of course not. But we say, for the sake of unity, we believe that there's a huge witness component and it's worth fighting for because that's what's going to change the world. So, because I'm called to be one, I must make every effort to keep unity in the church. Because I'm called to be one, I've got to make every effort to keep unity in the church. But what happens in the Western culture is we often think that we kind of church shop. That like we're, you know, we look around and we say, hey, where, where should I go? What should I do? And, and what's going to meet my needs? And, and while God may move you and I around to different locations, uh, he's still calling us to be one. And he's still calling us in that way. So we need to make every effort to keep unity in the church. And listen, Jesus knew that opposition and persecution would follow. He knew that once he died, once he was resurrected, once he was on earth for 40 days, and when he ascended into heaven, he knew that he wasn't going to be like, hey, I just want the church to get rooted and established and grow deep and then eventually branch out. Right? You think like it's like a baby growing up. Let's get this organization, just let's get them stable and then we'll start to launch out. No, no. Jesus said persecution is going to happen right away. And the church is going to be launched. It's going to be what's called the diaspora. It was dispersed around the world almost immediately. That he was just going to launch the church out. And that people were going to believe. He predicted that the church would grow. But he prayed for unity. And he just basically says, listen, there was going to be a dispersing. There's going to be an expansion of the church changing the world. And over that expansion, over that time, and over the oppositions that would happen both externally and internally... Jesus knew that the church would need to be unified, would need to come together, would need to love one another and have its witness in the world. So he's praying that you and I would make every effort to keep the unity. That's what Paul encourages us to do. Well, if you're going to keep unity, you've got to expect predictable opposition. Expect 
predictable opposition. And there's two types of opposition. Let me make this clear. There's internal opposition and there's external opposition. In any organization, there's always going to be two types of opposition. There will be either internal in your organization or it will be external. And there's two types of opposition. Let me talk about internal first. Listen, the person who accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and they go home to tell the rest of their unbelieving family that they now are a believer in Jesus Christ and they expect their family to be really happy are going to experience some external opposition, aren't they? They're going to go home and they're going to be like, you what? Like, are you serious? Oh, you're going to be one of them and they're going to give you all the stuff, right? In fact, a lot of people try to delay making that step toward faith because they're afraid of internal opposition. Jesus says, if you're going to be ashamed of me in front of other people, then I'd be ashamed of you. And what's he saying? He's saying, you probably won't come to authentic faith if that's going to be the thing that holds you back. You go to Muslim part of the world and other nations around the world, when you become a believer, oftentimes you're kicked out of your family. You're persecuted for it. But one of the first things you'll experience is the kind of opposition that's internal. Listen, you think, well, that's just in a religious thing, but what if your family already believes? Well, let me tell you, if you're a parent in this room, expect predictable opposition, right? If you're a parent in this room, and maybe your life's been going however it's been going, but now you're like, hey, I'm going to step in. I realize I'm letting my kids get away with too much. I'm going to discipline in some ways. We're going we're gonna to do things God's way. We're going to tighten some things up. We're going to expect immediate obedience from our kids and stop counting to three and, you know, I mean, just begin to train them in those ways. Guess what you're going to experience? internal opposition the rebellion will happen the dark side will show in your house right if you've got teenagers and you're like hey this nonsense that i've been allowing to go on isn't going to go on any longer if you try to change media tastes in your home you're going to expect internal opposition aren't you it's predictable though and i think sometimes we get caught off guard like we think well if we're doing things right if we're going to follow god we just won't experience opposition and jesus is saying no 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 Expect predictable opposition. It's going to happen. Sometimes it will happen internally. Listen, a church that gets on mission will experience internal opposition from those who desire it maybe to be comfortable or to be popular or to be a country club or, or something else. They want it to be something and the church isn't what they want. Then there's going to be some internal opposition. We can just expect that. But that's going to, what's going to happen if a church is going to be on mission. External opposition is something entirely different. External opposition is when the world attacks the church. More and more in our culture, we see a world that stands against the church, that's kicking God out of any public uh, faction, and you will see the pressure on the church. And they'll say, well, why? Why why do we need to do this? Because it seems like the whole world is going over to believe in Jesus, and so they're going to change tactics. And the tactics of the enemy are, if we're going to stop the bleeding of people going over to Jesus, I'm going to increase the pressure. And when the culture kicks God out more and more, guess what happens? The pressure on the church increases more and more. So we can expect and not be surprised by and not be overwhelmed by and not be distraught by external opposition. Listen, those who beat and persecuted the Apostle Paul, in this case, the Pharisees who threatened to put believers in Jesus out of the synagogue, they're like, we're kicking you out of church. You're going to lose your membership. You're going to lose your standing in our culture if you believe in Jesus. And so some of them would believe in Jesus but not say anything. Why? Because they were afraid of the Pharisees. 
They were afraid of the external opposition that they might lose something that they valued because they now were a follower of Jesus. Jesus said this about external opposition. In John chapter 15, verse 18, he said this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, you would love it as your own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. See, when you understand just how much God loves you, when you say, I want to become his and become part of his forever family, God's saying, listen, I am just simply choosing you out of the world. I'm choosing you out of that broken, decaying, condemned system, and I'm going to bring you into a system and a family that will never perish, spoil, or fade, a family of righteousness, a family of believers, a family of eternity, a family of having peace between you and God. And he draws you into that, but he's saying, listen, when I do that, please understand, the world hated me and they're going to hate you. Expect predictable opposition. It's going to happen. See, the Pharisees said this, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So what do they do? They increase pressure to stop the figurative bleeding, right? All the people are all bleeding out. They're all going over to Jesus. It's going away. Just everywhere people are turning to Christ and away from us. And so they stop. We've got to increase pressure to stop this figurative bleeding. The problem is Jesus knew that literal bleeding to death would stop the oppression of sin and save those who would believe. So they're saying, let's stop the bleeding. All the people are following after Jesus. And Jesus is saying, the only way out of this problem of the condemnation of sin is to give my life and to bleed, to literally pour out my blood and take upon myself the righteous wrath of the Father because the Father sent the Son to take the wrath that was deserved upon you and me, upon Jesus, and then to be, when we put our faith and trust in him, we're saved. Because Jesus paid for the condemnation of our sin. There was a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus uh, was a member of the ruling council of the Pharisees. So not just any average Pharisee. This guy was in the ruling council, the inner circle, if you will, of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. And at one point, he begins to watch and see and hear all these things that Jesus was doing. But he's... He's embarrassed. He's like, I can't have a conversation with Jesus with the rest of the Pharisees around. So what does he do? He sneaks out at night. He goes to visit Jesus in the middle of the night. And Jesus, by the way, calls him on it. Why are you here in the middle of the night, right? Because he knows you're embarrassed. You, you, you are, you know, you're in a catch-22. You got your whole ruling council thing, but you're starting to see what's going on here. And, and so he sneaks out, and Jesus says to him that he must be born again. It just blows his mind. How can a person be born again? How can they're born once? How can they come out of their mom again? And Jesus was speaking, no, on the inside, you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins, but that we get born again. And it began to get this intellectual guy thinking. And he watched what Jesus was doing. And his heart begins to turn toward Jesus. And in John chapter 7, verse 48, the Pharisees are having an argument about Jesus the, and, and the people who are believing in Jesus. And in John 7, 48, it says this, Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No! But this mob knows that nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. 
you know, they're just panicking at this point, right? Then it says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. What happens? Internal opposition. He asks a simple question, and he gets jumped by the other side, right? He gets attacked and jumped by his own people. By the other, he said, I'm just asking a logical, legitimate question. And they're like, look at it. Does a prophet ever come out of Galilee? They're not realizing that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is not in Galilee, but is in Judea, as the prophets foretold. But they jump him in that moment, don't they? Well, Nicodemus' heart is turning toward Jesus, and I love this passage because this happens right on Friday of the Passion Week. If you were to look ahead in your Bible to John chapter 19, beginning with verse 38, it says, this is right after Jesus is crucified, he's taken down from the cross. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders, right? With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And this little phrase, oh, by the way, He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Who's Nicodemus? A Pharisee. A member of the ruling council. A Pharisee among Pharisees. A Jewish religious leader among Jewish religious leaders. But what happens here is, here's Joseph of Arimathea and you now have Nicodemus right there with him. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night and Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I want you to understand something. You would think that a member of the Jewish council who would see Jesus be crucified think, that's it. I was wrong. They were right. But this man believes in Jesus. And it's so awesome because he would use his position, his authority, his experience, his power to even give Jesus a traditionally Jewish burial. He was the one who could do it. He brought the spices. He brought the entombing materials. He brought the religious backing to honor the burial of Jesus as it should have been. And he didn't know in that moment that Jesus would rise again. But here's a man who was told by Jesus, you need to, in a sense, die to yourself and be born again. And just three days later, he would find out that he serves a God who will rise again, who was born again, who was dead but came to life. And here's a man who's put his faith and his trust in Jesus, irrespective of the internal opposition, and now as he's acting publicly in terms of external opposition. Expect it. If the world's going to hate him, no big deal. It hated Jesus first, enough to put him to death. Did the resurrection unite Nicodemus to the opposition, or did it unite Jesus to Christ? What do you think, three days later? Where was Nicodemus' heart? To the Pharisees or to Jesus? 
When Jesus rose from the dead, it was absolutely to him. See, the Pharisees thought that by adding pressure, they would stop the bleeding. But what they didn't count on was Jesus' plan was literally to bleed, to die, to rise again. And by his wounds, we are healed because he took God's wrath against our sin upon himself. What a beautiful thing. In your program, you've got this card. I want you to pull it out real quick. You've got a card that looks like this. And on your outline, it says, who are you going to invite to Easter? And there's a blank for somebody's name. And today, we've given you a card. It says on the back, there's something here that could change your eternity. And we're talking about next Sunday, that there's opportunity. Listen, this is one of those weekends that if you were to invite somebody, typically Easter, also Christmas time, it's the time of year. It's the time that if you're going to invite somebody, typically they're going to say yes. This is the time of year that people go, yes, I'll go. And you might even be surprised. You might think of those who give external opposition. You might think of those who give internal opposition. And you might think, because there's opposition, I shouldn't invite them. But I'm going to say, be like Nicodemus. In spite of that opposition, will you invite somebody to church next weekend? And maybe you use this card, you hand this out to somebody else. You can put it in your car, in your wallet. You can put it somewhere in your purse that you have it. And you can invite somebody that God bumps you into this week. But who are you going to invite? And I want you, here's what I want you to do on your outline. I want you to write down the name of somebody that you're saying, Lord, I'll commit to at least invite that person. Will you ask him? Will you think of a specific name? You say, yeah, God, I've got some time this week. I will make time to invite that person to Easter. There might be internal opposition. There might be external opposition, but I'm going to invite them. There is a witness component to our unity and our worship. When people walk in here and they see us being super diverse and yet loving God, being coming from all sorts of backgrounds, but being one in Christ, there's something that happens in the human heart. There's something that awakens them. There's a witness. They see us singing praises and songs to God and they say, maybe the Father did send the Son. Maybe I should believe. Maybe there could be transformation for me. Maybe I could die to myself and I could rise again. I could be born again through faith in Christ. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just thinking about your own, li- your own life, right now, maybe that's you. Maybe today is the day that you realize for the first time, I've never given faith, given belief to the fact that Jesus died for me. That he was willing to take my shame, my guilt, my sin upon himself. And that he offers me forgiveness. Because he paid for it in full. It's canceled out. But you and I, we have to believe. We have to give belief. We have to offer faith to the fact of what Jesus did on the cross. If that's you today and you'd like to put your faith in Christ, you do that by introducing your desire to believe in him through prayer. It's like this. Just pray something right like this, right where you're seated. Jesus, today I give you me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, that you rose to new life because you were God. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin, to make me a new creation on the inside. Give me your Holy Spirit because today I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.